or a Bible in the rack in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin that we're going to be at. We're actually going to be in Galatians and the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, a, particular, uh, a particular fellow, um, Barnabas. He's got a lot of interesting things going on in his life. But uh, we're going to turn to the book of Galatians first. Galatians chapter 2. Um, Paul is dealing with a church that is distracted. They're distracted because um, there are a bunch of people telling, him, telling them that the gospel is not just about grace. It's also about following the rules. You can't just be a believer. You've got to be Jewish first, and then you can be a believer. And they're complicating their lives. And Paul is going to work his way. He's working his way to the doctrinal side of that through experience and connections with people that they're familiar with. And one of the core people that he's going to talk about is a guy named Barnabas. And we're going to talk about who he is so you can understand why he's so important to the story. Um, but we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has provided in chapter 1 kind of his background, his ministry. He was born in Tarshish, which is in kind of the southeast corner of what is today Turkey, between Turkey and Syria. Um, he uh, was living in Jerusalem, traveling to Damascus when he became a believer. He was converted on the way to Damascus. He lived in Damascus for a while. Then he went down to Jerusalem. Then he went back home to Tarshish. And then this guy Barnabas becomes involved in his life. And uh, so we're going to start with chapter 2 and verse 1. Actually, let's start chapter 1 and verse 21 just so I can, because I'm going to cover a lot of this. So in verse 21, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's Paul. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I love how he just skips over 14 years. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in, we talked about them last week, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows, shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me from mine to the Gentiles. He loves parenthetical statements. And when James and Kepha and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Kepha, now that's Simon Peter, when Kepha came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephah before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, in these written words, reveal to us your living word, Jesus, your Son. Help us to see him in all the glory of the grace that surrounds him. To know him better and in knowing him better, to know you better and to be transformed as we are following him. Lord, may our reception of your word be an act of worship and may it overflow into our lives where we worship in the regular and the everyday. Lord, help us to be your people, both in our successes and in our failures. We pray this in Jesus' name, by your Holy Spirit, our Father. Amen. I'm not going to ask you to turn to Acts and go through this, but I want to recount to you the, what we know about this guy named Barnabas. His, because I think he's important. In fact, he may be... Um, one of the, well, I won't say maybe, he definitely is one of the most significant people in the Bible that people know almost nothing about. He is single-handedly responsible for, for certain things that happened in the early church that brought about the ability of us, the Gentiles, to be a part of the church today. God used him in extraordinary ways, so I think we need to talk about it. His name was Joseph, um, and, uh, and he was from Cyprus. If you know what Cyprus is, Cyprus is an island in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, he is a Greek-speaking Jew, most likely, um, and he appears to have been a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, okay? Not T-R-A-I-T-O-R. That was uh, uh, the guy we talked about last week. Um, but, uh, but he was a traitor, and, and we, we kind of indicate this from some of the things that happened in his life. Um, but uh, he's from Cyprus, and we don't know exactly why he was in Jerusalem, but in Acts chapter 4, after the day of Pentecost, when, when people are coming to follow Jesus in droves, we have this little side note that, um, that people were selling what they had and having things in all common, and Joseph, uh, this guy who the apostles call nicknamed Barnabas, he has a piece of property that he sells and he gives the land, uh, gives the, the money to the church. Now, I have a personal theory. I wouldn't die on, a, on this hill, but we know that Joseph had a relative in Jerusalem named Mary. Um, and, uh, and I think, I couldn't prove it, um, but I, I can't absolutely prove it without a shadow of a doubt, but I think Mary is his sister. And the land that he sells... Um, is probably his brother-in-law's land. Um, because a woman cannot, under Jewish law, a woman could not sell a piece of land like that at the time. So she would have to have a, a male family member come and sell the land for her. So I think Joseph comes to Jerusalem because his brother-in-law died to take care of his sister and her son, John Mark. Um, some of your modern translations will call John Mark his cousin, 
Um, the old King James translated as his sister's son. That has to do with the Greek word. For some reason, there's this Greek word that just means they're family, but not close family. And they just lump everybody in that. Uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, they're all that category. Um, and that's what John Mark is. But he's, he's Mary's son. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, all right? not Mary Magdalene, not any of the other Marys in the Bible. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. And Joseph comes to sell this land, or, and he comes to faith uh, in this moment, and he gives the, the profits of, of this sale to the church. And probably Mary didn't need it. We find out later that Mary is living in a house that the church is worshiping in. Some of the Christians in Jerusalem are worshiping in her house. Um, in fact, she may be... Um, it may have been her house where the Lord's table was, where the Last Supper occurred. Um, there's indications in Mark's gospel that that, that that may be the case. Not absolute, but could be. And Barnabas sells this land, he gives it to the church, and the, and the apostles nickname him Barnabas. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, it's this weird moment where it says, um, at Joseph, the Bar- apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement which Barnabas doesn't mean. Barnabas, Barnabi means the son of the prophet. And if there's one group of people that are not encouraging, it's prophets. Now, there's a lot of reasons about how this could work. People go through the gymnastics of this. Um, this is this, and again, this is me being a little bit weird and being a language nerd. All right? But if you hear, if you hear Barnabi, and you, or, or you hear specifically Joseph Barnabas. And you were to hear Huiopericleos. All right? So let me, let me now make this a little bit Greek. Yosu Barnabas. Huiopericleos. They sound kind of the same. They're a little similar. I think this is a nickname, the son of the encouragement. And they give him this double name, da 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 da. Da, 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 da. All right? And they call him Barnabas, Joseph Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Huios Perocleos means the son of encouragement. And, and so he's, he's got this wacky name. They call him Barnabas. It means something else. I think it might be a pun. I, might actually, I actually think it's, it's their sense of humor, but that's, that's a side tangent I won't get into. They give him this name, and he stays in Jerusalem for a while. He's in Jerusalem for a little while. They go through some difficult times. Um, in fact, while he's there, this crazy nut who had been persecuting the church arrives in Jerusalem telling everybody he's converted and become a follower of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus. And the Jews are terrified of this guy and don't want to deal with him. And guess who steps forward to advocate for Saul of Tarsus? The son of encouragement, Barnabas. A Greek-speaking Jew sees another Greek-speaking Jew who's converted to following Jesus. They're both followers of Jesus, both Greek-speaking Jews. He says, hold on, don't judge this guy. Let's see what he does. Now, ironically, what, what Saul does is upset everybody, and Barnabas has to smuggle him out of Jerusalem and send him home. Um, Barnabas, and this is one of the reasons we, that I think Barnabas is a traitor. He, he again, T-R-A-D-E-R, um, he he is involved, the, the book of Acts says that the brethren send Paul to, or Saul of Tarsus to Caesarea, Phil, Caesarea Maritima, coastal harbor 
um, city. And from there, he goes home to Tarsus. Well, that's something that if, if Barnabas is um, involved in the sea trade, he can put Paul on a ship and send him home. He sends Paul home. Now what happens? Suddenly there's, there's this issue in the church in Jerusalem because Peter, Simon Peter, remember him? Simon Peter, he has this vision that the Gentiles can become followers of Christ. And then there starts to be a debate about this. Can Gentiles be the followers of Christ? What does it mean for a Gentile to be the follow, a follower of Christ? This is an interesting question. We should ask this question. What should we do? And then they find out that in Antioch, which is a city in Syria, there are other Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles becoming followers of Christ, and they say, we need to send somebody to check out what's going on. Guess who they send? Barnabas. All right, you. You, the Cyprian, all right, who got us in trouble with Paul. You go up there and find out what's happening. And guess what he does? He goes to Tarshish, he picks up Saul, and he brings him to Antioch with him. <laughs> He says, well, I need to get another Greek-speaking Jew who's now a follower of Christ. I think I'll grab this Saul of Tarsus guy. He goes to Tarsus. He gets Saul. He says, hey, let's go to Antioch, and let's check out these new believers who are Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles, and this craziness is going on. Saul and Barnabas show up, and they become prophets and teachers in the church. And they are, they are the ringleaders of the church. They're part of the ringleaders of the church in Antioch. In fact, they become so influential that when there's a famine in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch says, we need to send somebody down to Jerusalem to take some money to these people to take care of them, some food and money and stuff. Who should we send? Barnabas. And Barnabas goes, yeah, I'll grab Saul and I'll go to... Because last time Saul was in Jerusalem, it went so well. Let's take him again. So Barnabas grabs Saul and they go down to Jerusalem. While they're in Jerusalem, they're dealing with the situation... Herod Agrippa dies. I mentioned that last week. The, the world starts to split. The Christian world starts to split between Jewish believers uh, and who, people who are Jewish in culture and Greek-speaking believers who are not. There starts to be this division. Um, Peter is imprisoned and um, there's all this stuff going on. And then the scriptures say in Acts 12, it says that uh, Barnabas and Saul grab Barnabas' nephew John Mark and they go back to Antioch. No sooner are they through the door in Antioch, this is in Acts 13, no sooner are they through the door than the Holy Spirit moves the church of Antioch that Barnabas and Saul should go west and preach the gospel to the, to the again, the Greek-speaking Jews and the Gentiles. So, got a mission, we got to send somebody. Who are we going to send? Barnabas. So they load Barnabas up. Again, I think he, he, he's involved in the sea trade. So he says, I got a boat. That may have been the Holy Spirit's calling. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's calling is just, you can do it. I got a boat and get everyone. So Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, who's soon to be Paul, um, the apostle, uh, and Barnabas, and Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, they get on a boat, they sail to Cyprus. They preach the gospel there. Then they go from Cyprus to Pisidia, which is a region in western, uh, what is today Turkey, western Anatolia. They work their way back. They wind up at a city in Lystra, and this is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Bible. They're preaching the gospel, and they're doing miracles, and the people of Lystra look at these two, and this should tell you what, what all you need to know about Barnabas and Paul. And they decide that Paul is Hermes, which tells me that Paul probably talked really fast, like I do. 
so I have a biblical precedent for the speed of my speech. Um, Paul is Paul seems to be a very like very energetic, everywhere, all at once kind of guy, and they think that Barnabas is Zeus. Now this is like calling somebody Santa Claus, all right? So I just picture Barnabas must have been a big guy. He must have been imposing. He probably had a booming voice. He's wealthy, you know, because he's involved in the sea trade. And they say, oh, that's Zeus. And that little guy that's bouncing around him, that's Hermes. That, that is Mercury. He's flying around, but this is Zeus. All right? so, so this is one of the great moments. I mean, you're preaching Christ, and they go, oh, you're Zeus. And Barnabas goes, no, you got that one wrong. Well, anyway, they work their way through. They spend quite a while traveling. So they go to Cyprus. They go to Asia Minor. They work their way back, and they get back to Antioch. And they spend a couple years there. And then they find out that in Jerusalem, there are people preaching that the gospel requires for you to be Jewish. This is in Acts chapter 15. You must not just follow Jesus. You must convert to Judaism. And the church of Antioch says, we need to send somebody to answer this question. Who should we send? Barnabas! So they load up Barnabas, who's, who's got now wearing a, you know, a sticker on the back of his shirt that says, I am not Zeus. Um, Barnabas, and now everybody's calling him Paulos or Paul. All right, so Saul of Tarsus has become Paul. He's now traveling under his Roman identity. That was his Roman name, Paulos. Um, and so they load up Barnabas and Paul. And Paul says, hey, can I bring this Gentile that is following Jesus but hasn't been circumcised? And Barnabas goes, sure. They load up, they walk down, they go down to Jerusalem, probably sail down to Caesarea Maritima, they pass into Jerusalem, and they're involved in this council where the church decides. The church of Jerusalem says, Gentiles do not need to be Jewish in order to follow Christ. They praise, and this is what happens here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. That's this moment. He goes up with Barnabas. He and Barnabas go back to Antioch. They are so excited that this has been made clear. This is true. The Gentiles can follow Christ. And at some point, Simon Peter, Kepha, comes to visit them in Antioch. And while he's there, he is celebrating and eating with the Gentiles and the Jews and the church is just all getting, around, getting together like it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just extraordinary. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, Greek speaker or Hebrew speaker or slave or free, barbarian or Greek. We're all together. And then some other teachers show up, some other Jewish teachers show up and they start saying this stuff that the church had condemned. They came from James. We don't know whether they're coming from James speaking for James or what's going on, but they're speaking and Simon Peter suddenly gets up from the table says, I'm not eating with the Gentiles and even Barnabas under pressure under the presence of these preachers and all the other Jewish believers start to say, yeah, we shouldn't be with the Gentiles they start to back up Barnabas, the son of encouragement steps up from the table to get away that's what we read here um, when it says, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy, chapter 2 and verse 13. 
Now, I'm going to be honest. This is a little bit of imagination here, but I don't think this took place over the course of a couple of days. I think here's what happened. Simon Peter showed up. He was hanging out with everybody. They were fine. The Jewish leaders showed up. They started telling everybody they shouldn't be doing this. All right, they shouldn't be celebrating with Gentiles. Simon Peter, the Jews all start getting up from the table. Simon Peter and, the, and Barnabas are sitting at the table as all the Jews are getting up. Paul is sitting at the table watching them. I think that Simon Peter gets up, and I think Barnabas starts to rise from the table, and Paul puts his hands on the table and stands up and says, Stop! How dare you? Look at what he says. All right, as he's talking about this, he said, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, and I said to Kepha before them all. Now he speaks to Simon Peter, but Barnabas is there. He says, how dare you? If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you expect the Gentiles to behave like Jews? How dare you? Now, in my mind, this is what I see happens. I could be wrong, but I think Barnabas just sits back down. Simon Peter probably took a little bit longer because he's Simon Peter and takes a little while for things to get through his head. But I think they recognize, and this is a moment This is the moment where Paul becomes the preeminent apostle in the church. That, by the way, is why we have all of these letters written by Paul and only two by Peter and none by Barnabas. Paul is the preeminent apostle of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's at this moment that he asserts that authority. And Barnabas and Simon Peter bend. They recognize his authority. Now, I mentioned that Barnabas is super important. Had it not been for Barnabas going to get Paul when he was sent up to Antioch, this would have never happened. We would have never had the treasury of truth and doctrine we have from Paul's letters had Barnabas not been an encouragement to a young hothead Paul. Had he not laughed off being called Zeus... Had he not leveraged his abilities and his his money to be able to take Paul on this mission's journey? Had he not been in Jerusalem to sell land? The church would never have become what the church has become. And we could look at that and we can see only in hindsight God's sovereignty in Barnabas' life. Very quickly, later on, later on we have Paul talk about Barnabas again. Now, what happens after this moment is that Paul says to Barnabas, hey, we should go visit all those churches we visited. Barnabas says, let me take my nephew John. And Paul says, no. And they split. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. And Paul goes to Asia Minor and eventually to Greece. Now, a lot of people think that this is some kind of acrimonious split. I kept trying to find the wrong word. Um, An acrimonious split where these guys were bitter toward one another, but that doesn't seem to be the indication at all. In fact, Paul still holds Barnabas in very high regard. Um, Later on in the, the book of Colossians, he will talk about John Mark and how he's a part of Paul's group. Like, like they're still working together. 
And extraordinarily, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, when he's describing his ministry as an apostle, he speaks specifically about himself and Barnabas being in the same category as preachers of the gospel. And he, and he, he uses Barnabas specifically. Um, and so there's this, there's this partnership at a distance between these two men. Um, that, that moment when Paul had to correct Barnabas and Simon Peter did not end their relationship, it just changed it. Because Paul stayed true to what the church had been saying. This wasn't Paul's idea. It goes all the way back actually to Simon Peter. So, all that biographical stuff about Barnabas, this moment, when Barnabas is followed, follows the Jews, when he's carried along with the Jews in this moment, I want to ask a question about that. Because I think it pertains to us. Was all the good that Barnabas did up to that point negated by one failure? And the answer is no. Barnabas goes about his ministry. He continues his role. Paul is talking about him in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. He continues to to minister and to serve. And I'm not talking about a lifestyle of sin. He had one moment, one moment where he went against what the gospel had been revealed to be. And I think we all know those moments in our lives when we do something that goes against everything we have learned about Christ. And the question is, does that destroy what God has been doing through you? And the answer is no. So many Christians live in this weird false guilt of not being good enough for God because they occasionally fail. Again, I'm not talking about lifestyle, lifestyles of sin. It was like, I mean, some people say, well, you know, well then, if grace, if, uh, should we sin that grace should abound? The Apostle Paul deals with that. No, you don't get to a license to sin because of grace, but you also should not live your life in a, under guilt because you're an imperfect human being. And I know plenty of believers who get paralyzed by the possibility that they might do something wrong. That they, they can't, because one time I made a mistake and it was a terrible mistake and I don't want to make that mistake again. And if I make that mistake again, oh man, I mean, think about this. And we become paralyzed by this obsession with a self-centered holiness. Barnabas blows the whole thing with the gospel. Had Paul not stood up and opposed him, Barnabas' entire legacy would have been tainted. Now the Galatians, by the way, know who Barnabas is. Because when Paul and Barnabas were on their way back, they, they went on their first missions trip, they left Antioch, they went to Cyprus. 
Then they went up to Asia Minor. They walked the trade route through Central Asia Minor back to, um, back to the coast. Guess where they went through and started churches? Galatia. They know who Barnabas is. And the false teachers have been coming through, and I think they've been telling the Galatians, you can't listen to Paul. Simon Peter said that, we don't have, that the Gentiles have to become Jews. And Barnabas said that the Gentiles had to, be Jew, had to become Jews. And this letter is Paul crossing his arms and saying, they don't know Barnabas, I do. Who do they think they are to speak for my friend Barnabas? What is Barnabas's legacy? Barnabas's legacy isn't the failure. Barnabas's legacy is that from the very beginning, he was one of the most open-minded believers when it came to who grace could be extended to. He first extended it to um, the church in Jerusalem as a Jew, accepting that what they were preaching about Christ was true and receiving grace. Then he extended it to, the, to Saul of Tarshish. Then he extended it to the Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. Then he extended it to Jerusalem. Then he extended it to Cyprus. Then he extended it to Asia. Then he extended it to the Galatians. And then he makes one mistake. You cannot live bound by your mistakes. You must continue in the truth that you know exists. But that's not my big idea. So if you wrote that in the big idea space, crash it out. And you need, we as believers need to appreciate the significance of this. Correction is not condemnation. I want you to think about that for a second. Correction is not condemnation. How many of you know somebody, and maybe it's you, that when somebody tries to correct them, you go on the defensive because you could not possibly be wrong? Because being wrong is not something you do. I was told once by a pastor that all the theology he had ever needed to learn he had learned in Bible college 40 years ago and nothing needed to change. I literally, with my mouth open, went, I'm not sure I believe everything I believed four days ago. Now, we're not talking about orthodox, I mean, virgin birth and inspiration of Scripture and stuff, but you know what? We are humans and we are fallible and we are finite and we make mistakes and that means we sometimes need to be corrected. That's not condemnation. You say, oh, the pastor's got a list of things he's going to correct us on. Listen, I have... I have a community of elders and men I respect and women I respect who sometimes offer correction to me. And you know what? It is absolute arrogance to believe that I don't need to be corrected. Because sometimes I say things that make no sense. It's just the price of talking as much as I do. We all at times need our course corrected. Correction is not condemnation. I mean, let's be honest. 
How many of us in our lives have been trying to do something that's been difficult, somebody tried to correct us, and you threw your hands up in the air and went, I can't do this. Or more classically, stop picking on me. I'm always wrong. My wife, I'm never allowed to throw her under the bus. I'm throwing myself under the bus on this one. I am a terrible guitar teacher. Awful. Awful guitar teacher. Because I've been playing guitar since I was five years old, and I have no idea what I do. So when I try to help somebody learn how to play the guitar, it goes like this. Okay, that was okay, but not like that. Like this. And then I play for 20 minutes. And my wife will look at me and just take her guitar, put it in the case, and go... And the hardest thing in the world is, is to take correction, from some, take correction and not view it as condemnation, not view it as negativity, not view it as, as an attack. Don't the, the scriptures say something along the lines of all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness? What was that third word? Correction, instruction in righteousness? Isn't it a profound idea to realize that we all as believers need correction and instruction? We need reproof. We need, an, we need to be corrected from time to time. And it's okay. Right? It's okay to be corrected. It doesn't mean condemnation. When, when somebody says to you, well, that's not what the Bible says, they're not saying to you, you moron. They're saying, here's what the scriptures say. You need to conform what you're saying to what the Bible says. That's correction. Now, it can be gentle. It can be abrasive. It can be sometimes sitting across the table and peacefully leading people. And sometimes it's just standing up from the table like Paul did and saying, stop. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Think about how that doesn't fit with the gospel. There's a, there's a megachurch pastor who stands up every Sunday and tells people that the Bible tells them that they are good and wonderful. If I were to ever be on TV, which will never, ever happen. I'm on Facebook right now. Facebook is just proof that any idiot can get on the internet. If I were ever on TV and I stood up and gave everybody a creed at the beginning of, this, of our worship services, it would go something along like this. I'm a loser just like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a loser just like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it wrong. You get it wrong. We all get it wrong. Praise God for grace. Amen. We should do that, right? Isn't that a great cheer? Ra, ra, ra. I hate cheers. <laughs> Barnabas's legacy did not end with failure. And let me tell you something. It didn't end with condemnation. And so often we, in our own minds, create condemnation that becomes a prison and slavery for us. It's okay to be corrected when we're wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. 
But it's okay to be wrong and be corrected. That's what the community of Jesus Christ is all about. Now, praise God for grace. We don't have to be right all the time in order to earn God's favor. And that's a nice thing to have. But it's okay for us to be corrected. You know what that means? It means it's okay for us to ask stupid questions. Because if they're honest questions, they're not that stupid to start with. It's okay for us to explore the boundaries of what things mean. Because if we're wrong, we can be corrected without being condemned. It's okay for us to to interact with things in an intelligent, spiritual way. It's okay for us to sometimes say things that aren't right, be corrected, and learn how to be right. And it's okay for that process to go on for your entire spiritual journey. Take super-Christian out behind the barn and put a cap in its head and be the follower of Christ that you are and submit to the authority of the Scriptures, accept correction, instruction, and righteousness and reproof and walk with Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. And our legacy is not our failures. Our legacy is is the grace of God using others to set us right to do His work. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I delude myself sometimes into believing that You don't see how broken I am. that you don't know my doubts and my fears. Father, once again I lay my heart and my imagination and my beliefs before you and ask that you correct, reprove, lead, instruct, guide, restrain, that all glory might be given to you even in our flawedness and our brokenness. Lord, help us as a body to correct and instruct and lead and encourage to be Barnabas and to be Paul and to be uh, Peter to one another. Lord, that we might look back upon our failures and see only your grace. We pray this, Lord, knowing that you alone are worthy of our worship, our glory. Jesus, you alone are our Savior as we put our faith and trust in you and walk with you. We pray all of this, Holy Spirit, knowing that you alone guide and correct us using your church and your word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we take this and we walk from here as your people.